0: Let us pray together. You yourself have said, our Lord, that life is all about relationships, two relationships. Love the Lord your God, you say. Love your neighbor. As you teach us about loving our neighbor in this section, help us to learn to see each other, to see Christ's small ones as you see us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the introduction is never meant to be a throwaway. Today, it's particularly helpful in understanding what we're about to study. I just remind you that chapter 18 starts off with a question. The question from the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? That's what drives this chapter. Jesus responding to that question and to the spirit of that question. And I pointed out that it, it consists of... Uh, Two sections divided into three lessons each. We're in the third of the first section. This section we're looking at now is all about each small one. Talking about the small ones and each one of the small ones recurs again and again. Look at the first and last words in my translation for you. Verse 10, see that you do not disdain one of these small ones. And now look at the last words. It is not the will of your father who is in the heavens that one of these small ones perish. It's all about the small ones and it's all about each one of the small ones. The word one. Is stated three times at the beginning, the middle, and the end. Look at verse 10 again. See that you do not disdain one of these small ones. Look at verse 12. If some man should happen to have a hundred sheep and one of them strays, he'll go after that sheep. And then again, verse 14. It is not the will of your father that one of these small ones perish. It's all about each one of the small ones. Now, apply the context. What we've looked at so far, it's always so important to apply the context in understanding any verse or even word of Scripture. Uh, remember that just before this section, what did Jesus talked about? He talked about uh, the danger of trip sticks, of occasions of tripping and being trapped, coming to small ones. So what if one of these small ones should stumble? Jesus is going to teach us that the way that we should see these small ones. Should we look down on them? No, he says expressly, don't look down on them. We've got to have our view on small ones, even the ones who stumble, We've got to have our view of them formed by the way God loves them, how much he loves them, even when they stray. And Jesus is going to make that point to us in three different ways. So let's look at the first, Roman numeral one. It's seen in how the Son forbids their devaluation. Roman numeral one, how the Son the sun forbids their devaluation. D-E-V-A-L-U-A, their devaluation. Jesus says, see that you do not disdain one of these small ones. Well, first, of course, we've got to be squared away on who the small ones are. Who's he talking about? Letter A. Well, I just remind you of the context, verses Uh, 1 through 6. He's talked about it several ways. Remember, they say, who's the greatest? They ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? And what does Jesus say? Unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll not enter the kingdom of the heavens. And then he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself and becomes as this little child, this child who he's called over to himself and stood in the midst of them, whoever humbles himself as this little child... That's the one who's great in the kingdom of heaven. So then he switches and talks about bringing stumbling to these little ones who believe in me, the ones who are like this little child. He said in verse um, 5, whoever accepts, whoever welcomes a little child like this one in my name welcomes me. Now he's not talking about children anymore when he talks about small ones. He's talking about believers. The the child is a picture of the spirit of a believer. Now he's talking about disciples, whatever their age is. We saw in chapter 10 that he refers to his disciples as the small ones, mikroi, the the Greek word, we use micro from that word. Uh, So the micro ones, the little ones, the small ones, it's the opposite of great. And so he's talking about them. They are people who have then converted. They realize they're going the wrong direction and they've turned around. They've become as little children, realizing they need to start all over again and relearn everything all over again at the feet of Jesus. They need to rethink the entire way they look at the world. They humble themselves, they take a lowly position at the feet of Jesus to learn the truth from Jesus. That's who he's talking about. And as such, they're very vulnerable. They've made themselves vulnerable. They're learning, they're in need of care, they're in danger of being deceived. They're the ones that the world sees as nothing special. We, we looked at Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, that they're not the great in the world. They're not the people the world looks up to. They're small, they're despised, they're non-entities, but what's really great about them, the really, really great thing about them, I'll say it personally, the best thing about me, the greatest thing about me, it's Jesus. It's just Jesus, and that's what Paul says. In order that, as it is written, whoever boasts, let him boast in the Lord, First Corinthians 1. So, this is who we're talking about. That's who the little ones are, the small ones. They're those who have humbled themselves as little children. They've been converted. They've begun to learn from Jesus. So now we see how we must see them, because Jesus gets right into that. He gets right in our face about how we have to regard and how we must not regard these little ones, these small ones. See that you do not disdain one of these small ones. So we've got to remind ourselves of, of our own perennial tripstick, and that is what was signaled by the question the apostles asked. They ask who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. And we've all got that little thing in us that we want to be great. We want to be someone. We want to be elevated and looked up to as they did. And so, uh, in fact, the word great is an antonym for small. So he calls us small ones. And the question of greatness is an ironic and out of place question. That's the way he's showing us. But one way that fallen men make themselves great is by making themselves bigger than others. They make themselves big by making others small. Have you seen that? You see that often in, uh, how many political campaigns have I seen? That the whole campaign is is about how bad the other guy is. And I'm left asking myself, but why should I vote for this guy? Just because he's not the other guy? Sometimes the answer to that question is yes, but (laughs) that's not my point. My point is that the whole focus is on bringing the other person down. I remember one presidential campaign, a very flawed person years ago, don't get too recent, but years ago, and, and whenever he was questioned about the things he'd done wrong, he always pointed to faults of other presidents. That was his answer for them. Make them small so he could be bigger. Well, that's inside of all of us. And Jesus gets right, to, right in front of our faces and says to us, don't look down. That's not the way to greatness. The way to greatness is not to make the other little ones small and look down on them. And all the more, the temptation, if we can see a fault in one of these little ones, if they have, like the previous section talked about, if they have stumbled, if they've fallen, well, then we really feel entitled to look down on them. But Jesus says to us, you see to it that you do not disdain, do not look down on these other ones. Unsurprisingly, there's a number of warnings about this in the Word of God. Just turn to a couple of passages together. Turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. Let's pick out a few. You see, this thing did not stop being an issue at the end of the Gospels. It's still an issue for Christian churches. See what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Literally, the Greek says, as to honor, giving preference to one another. So in showing honor, in holding others and make more of a point of honoring others than we do of seeking honor for ourselves, you see. In verses 15 and 16, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep by being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind, the apostle says. So it's, it's our Tendency to seek those who are great and good. And Paul says, no, seek those who are in need and meet those needs. Look for people who you can give something to, people who have needs that you can meet, people who have lacks that you can fulfill. Look for those people and give to those people. Show love to those people in devotion. Um, Look at Philippians chapter 2 in the same connection. And if you're familiar with that, You're thinking, oh boy, here we go. Because yeah, this is the really big one. I mean, this one makes that point with a wallet. He begins the chapter calling us, if there's any encouragement in Christ, then there is. Consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit. Verse two, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Now look at verse three. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory the desire to be great, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Well, where's that question, who's the greatest with that kind of attitude? It's out the door. Verse 4, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. When the church service is over, do we look for our favorite people, or do we look for a needy person? who we can hopefully, that would be our favorite person, the person we can give to, the person we can serve. Welcome, pray for, meet needs in some way. Uh, Also for the interests of others, and then as if he hadn't already brought us down low enough, he says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm destroyed. Because that example just brings us all right to the point of the matter. Who although he existed in the form of God, took the form of a slave, humbled himself to the death on the cross. You be like that, he says. Did any ever lower himself more? Well, no, this was an infinite lowering. From the highest, I don't even want to say in the universe, because God is uncreated. He's in a category all by himself. And Christ eternally was God, but he took to himself a finite human nature and lived among us for the sole purpose of fulfilling the law of God, speaking the word of God, and making atonement for his people to God. Dying that shameful death on the cross. And Paul says, tell you what, you be like that. You have that mental attitude. And so anticipating that, the Lord Jesus says to us, see to it that you do not disdain one of these small ones. Well, Letter C will ask the question and answer the question, why? Why does Jesus say this? Why should I not disdain these, even one of these small ones? Well, I've got one really good reason for that. What's that going to be? Because Jesus says don't. <laughs> and really, that's enough reason, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that's all we need to know. It should be. For a Christian, it should be. All we need to know is that Jesus says don't do it. In fact, he says it very emphatically, doesn't he? He actually gives two commands. You may miss it in English, but he says, see to it, do not disdain one another. So put those ideas together as we're meant to do. He's saying, you put your eye on this. You, you, you put your attention on this. You make it your business to make sure that you do not look down on. Do not disdain. That's what this word means. Don't think lowly of. Don't put down in your mind one of these small ones. Make it your business. Focus your attention. And that just tells me that must be a danger. If he's telling me to keep my eye on this, well, then that must be something I need to keep my eye on. And you as well. Jesus says, see to it that you do not think. And by the way, I just point out that this this completes the pattern that I've pointed out before of these first three. Jesus first talks directly to them in each of the three sections, talks directly to them, then a general statement. And then in the second one, he starts with a general statement, then talks directly to them. And now in this third one, he talks directly to them, and then a general statement. So who's the greatest? He says, you need to be converted. Whoever humbles himself is great. And the second one, he says, uh, who, whoever brings a, a stumbling stick, uh, it's, he might as well have drowned. It would be better for him that he drowned. And then he makes a general statement about trip sticks, about stumbling traps. And then here, here he starts off talking to us. Don't you disdain one of these little ones. And then he speaks in general principles, the same pattern, A, B, B, A, A, B. So that said, he says... Do not do this. See to it that you do not do this. And then he gives us, although I say that's reason enough, you call me Lord, Lord, and so I am, Jesus says, so we should do what he says. But still graciously, he gives us two additional reasons to that. So we really have three reasons. We have, first of all, because God the the Son says... So, and then he's going to add two additional reasons for this. I just want to point out God is so gracious in this way, often in his word. All he really needs to do is tell us what he wants to do and then say, I am the Lord. And that is cognitively sufficient. I mean, that's what we need to know. But so often... He gives us reasons and incentives and encouragement and even explanations. And and he does that here so graciously. He gives us reasons, and that's going to be Roman numerals 2 and 3 in just a moment. But before we get there, one last thing about this. I want to point out the irony that Jesus, very, very literally, the Greek word for disdain means to think down on. So he says, don't think down on these small ones. And the natural answer might be, well, why shouldn't I? They're small. (laughs) Why shouldn't I? I mean, like if a really small person said, don't look down at me. Well, but you're down there. I mean, what what else could I do unless I hold up a mirror? And so don't think down on these small ones. We might ask why they're small. And Jesus answer basically is they're not small to me and they're not small to heaven. That's why. Well, he's already told us they're not small to him, hasn't he? Because he's told us, don't think this way about them. So we know they're not small to him. Roman numeral 10, that t- 2 then, a second reason, angels are assigned for their protection. Verse 10b, Roman numeral 2, angels are assigned for their protection. Jesus says, For I say to you that their angels in the heavens continually see the face of my Father who is in the heavens. Wow, twice in a half a verse, in the heavens. So they're small, and we're not to look down on them. And the reason for that is way, way up there in the heavens. In the heavens, their angels see the face of my Father continually, who is in the heavens. What does that mean? What is he even talking about? I know a lot of you have looked at that. Oh, no, let me reword that. A lot of us have looked at that and scratched our heads. What is he exactly talking about? Well, first, let me say he's not declaring something commonly misbelieved. In other words, he's not saying what a lot of people have thought that he's saying. He's not saying that each believer has a guardian angel assigned to him. That is not what Jesus is saying. Does that disappoint you? Well, please don't leave. There's a whole lot more to say. No, he's not saying that, and some Jews thought that. In fact, some Jews thought that we actually had two assigned to us. We had a guardian angel and a demon assigned to us. That sounds like a shoulder angel thing, doesn't it? You know, the, the, the shoulder demon and the shoulder, shoulder angel. But yeah, that was actually Jewish teaching contemporarily, but Jesus is not saying that. He's not talking about guardian angels. I found some really bizarre words about this from none other than a, a source of many bizarre words, Pope Francis. Pope Francis, in a paper called We All Have an Angel, says, according to church tradition, that always means not in the Bible, that's code word, just, just saying, according to church tradition, we all have an angel with us who guards us, who makes us hear things. Oh, well, that explains it. You know, say, Oh, that's why I hear things. I guess that's what the Pope is saying, but it gets even, you pick the adjective, how is we we should all ask ourselves every day we should ask ourselves this saith the pope how is my relationship with my guardian angel do i listen to him i am not making this up do i bid him good day in the morning good morning guardian angel do i speak to him do i ask his advice is he beside me So, you know, this is just part of the thing that you see in cults and false teachings. An array, an endless array, and we talked about this in the class on Colossians. Endless array of shiny objects to get us looking everywhere except where? To the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. So now in addition to all the dead people I have to talk to, I have to talk to a guardian angel. Well, of course, that is not at all what the Bible teaches. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And it's not what Jesus is saying. What does Jesus say? He says, their angels in the heavens continually see the face of my Father who is in the heavens. Now, where is the idea that each one of them has a single angel on earth protecting him? All Jesus says is he says, their angels are in heaven seeing the Father's face. So... This does not teach guardian angels. Now, if that's uh, disappointing to you, then hang with me. Letter B, he's not teaching that one common misconception, letter B, but he is displaying many glorious truths. Many glorious truths when you set them in the larger biblical context. So first, let's lay down some biblical truths about angels. And the first letter A is that angels have deployments. They've got assignments from God. We read some very tantalizing, interesting things. Just note down Daniel chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, and verses 20 through 21, and then Daniel 12, 1. Daniel 10, verses 11 to 13, verses 20 to 21, and then chapter 12, one, And let me tell you what these say. In the first, Daniel 10, 11 through 13, an angel appears, an unnamed angel appears to Daniel. And he says that he'd been delayed 21 days by the prince of the kingdom of Persia who opposed him. Now, he's not talking about a human being. This is an angel. An angel assigned signed over Persia. A fallen angel, as a matter of fact, because he opposes an angel of God. So angels and demons have turfs. Now, I've demonstrated a demon having a turf, but then he says, Michael, one of the chief princes, came and helped him. So Michael is one of God's angels, one of the only two named angels of God in the Bible. And he comes and helps this unnamed angels who then also face the kings of Persia. So there are various fallen and elect angelic beings clashing here. Chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, this unnamed angel says he's going to go back against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece is about to come. But he says, I'm I'm going to be helped by Michael, your prince. So Mike, Michael then is an angel who's assigned to the people of Israel. In fact, chapter 12 verse 1 refers to Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. So there's an angel with a specific assignment. Doesn't say he's the only one, but he is one who is assigned to be over the people of Israel. So angels have deployments, and in their deployments they, they can face off against demons. Demons in that region. Secondly, angels are deployed for believers. Letter B, angels are deployed for believers. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you, and all the pronouns here, the verbs, uh, have a singular pronoun. Not just you, the people, but you, the individual believer. He will command his angels concerning, I'll go King James on you, concerning thee, to guard thee the, in all thy ways. On their hands they will bear thee up, lest thou strikest th- thy foot against a stone. There's an assignment of angels to help believers. Luke sixteen twenty-two in Jesus' story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. How does Lazarus get to Abraham's bosom? He's carried there by angels. Angels, not just one, but by angels. And then the very famous and tantalizing again, verse Hebrews 1.14. Hebrews 1.14, the writer asks, are they not, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Well, now, what do they do? Are you ready for my answer? I don't know. I don't know what they do. I don't know what they do. The Bible doesn't say a lot about it. So how much attention should I give it? Not a lot. Just as much as the Bible gives it. I should be assured to know that if there's a need that requires an angel, God will send one to meet that need. Now, I know in Ephesians 6 that there is a spiritual warfare going on. But what it mostly tells me is to get my armor on and be ready. But if there are demonic forces involved, then these verses assure us there will also be angelic forces involved on behalf of the believer. And if there's something that I'm not able to withstand against, well, then God will send an angel to withstand against it. And I think, you know, I I envision an eternity, you know, like a family movie night where we see the real of our lives and all the places where an angel stepped in and helped us that we weren't conscious of. And it's not obviously something to get... Um, obsessed about it all because the Bible doesn't give us anything. The Bible says look to Jesus. But it says, by the way, God's angels have been assigned to protect, to watch over, to serve believers. And they care about us in their an- angelly way. Uh, letter C, angels rejoice at conversions. Luke 15, 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They rejoice as they rejoice at the birth of Jesus. They rejoice at the conversion of one sinner. So those are truths about angels. Let's turn around then and make the application of truths for us. And again, why we should not be disappointed to learn that we don't have, there's no biblical support for the idea that we have a guardian angel assigned to each one of us. So the first thing I want to say to you is that Christians don't have a guardian angel assigned to us. All the angels are assigned as our guardians. Are you still disappointed? Jesus simply says that the angels behold the face of our Father. And so they belong to God. They're God's angels. We belong to God. We're God's people. God assigns them over us. According to His will, and according to our needs, he assigns them to our care with apologies to Pope Francis. It's not our job to say top of the morning to them. It's their job to serve us as God assigns them. And this is true, secondly, of all the small ones who believe in Christ. Maybe you think, well, of course angels were assigned to protect Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Charles Spurgeon. Of course, maybe they're assigned to protect um, John MacArthur or whatever admirable figure you see today. Well, that's all true. But they're assigned to all of Christ's little ones. These little ones may have very little on earth, but they have angels in heaven assigned to them. They have angels in the presence of God. And Jesus says they're beholding the face of God continually. So what does that mean? That means that if God needs to dispatch them to our aid, they will know it right away, and they'll be on it right away because they're watching the face of God. So you see, the truth is that even the most humble saint has glorious angels assigned to him as to all of us. It's quite a privilege to behold the face of God. Uh, Humans can't behold the face of God and live. Even the angels in Isaiah 6 cover their face in the presence of God, but these angels behold his face. And these are the angels who are assigned to believers. They're their angels, Jesus says. Matthew Henry remarks very well Let not earth despise those whom heaven respects, let those be looked upon with respect as his favorites. That's the force of Jesus' teaching. So, first reason not to look down on these small ones is Jesus says don't. The Son says don't. A second reason is because glorious angels are assigned to them. And now a third reason, Roman numeral three, the Father assures their salvation. The Father assures their salvation. Verses 12 through 14. And first then, let's consider together the story of a man's wanderer, verses 12 and 13. In this case, the wanderer is a sheep. A man's wanderer, verses 12 through 13. Jesus makes his point with a parable. He tells a little bitty parable about a a man and his sheep. So we find the setup in verse 12a. Jesus asks, what does it seem like to you? If some man should happen to have a hundred sheep and one of them strays, dot, 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 we'll just stop there, I think it's... It's just very cool. Uh, it's very uh, instructive that Jesus asks them a question. What does this seem to you? He, he engages them. He's he'd done the same thing with Peter about the temple tax, you remember? What does it seem like to you, Peter? He asked him. I wonder if this was meant to strike Peter's mind, though. If Peter was one of those asking, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then your Jesus comes again saying, what does it seem like to you? And he tells this story to make the point that we should not look down on any of God's small ones. And that is what being great means. I want to be bigger than him, right? And Jesus calls us all small ones. So, a man's wanderer, the setup. Man has a hundred sheep. A hundred sheep is an average-sized flock in Palestine in Jesus' day. It might be a hundred to three hundred, but a hundred is a decent-sized flock. And I remind you of the relationship of the shepherd to the sheep shepherds knew their sheep name. You say, how did they do that? Sheep look, all look alike. Well, the shepherds learned to tell which was which and the particular foibles and weaknesses and strengths of each sheep. And they cared about the sheep. They spent day and night with the sheep through all kinds of weather, watching over them, seeing to their needs. There was a close attachment between the shepherd and the sheep. Well, the Bible teaches us that sheep do three things really well, and they do them all the time. And for your convenience, I've assigned an S to all of them. There's three things they do really well. Straying, scattering, and being slain. That's the three things they're really good at. They're good at straying. There are many verses about that. Isaiah 53, 6, we began, that, uh, began the service with that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Like sheep have gone astray. In other words, we've gone astray like sheep do. <laughs> this It's what they do. They go astray. And that's what we've done. And we've turned to our own way, but Christ made atonement for us. They're really good at straying. Secondly, they're really good at scattering. Thirdly, they're really, being good, they're really good at being slain. I found one verse that has both, Ezekiel 34, 5. Speaking of the sheep, uh, the people of Israel likened to sheep. Yahweh says they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. See, they're inclined to stray, so that's what a shepherd's there for, hopefully to stop them from straying. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. So uh, a sheep doesn't have natural defenses. He doesn't have sharp fangs and claws and wings and really anything, just just, just his dumb sheepy self. Sheep are, are, are models of stupidity. Uh, they, they just do not have... Uh, any brains in their woolly heads. I told you a story once about a sheep who went over a cliff, and I I forget, like one or two hundred followed him, because that's what he did. And he's all went over the cliff together. I think this was in Turkey. So yeah, that's what sheep do. That's the setup. And this man has a hundred, and one of them, when you think of it, is a pretty good day, there's just one, but one of them strays. Now that straying is the one that's stressed here. That word occurs three times here. Uh, verse 12, one of them strays uh, and he goes and seeks the straying sheep and then verse uh, 13, he rejoices over him more than the ones who have not strayed. So straying is the big stress here. Uh, One sheep of a hundred strays. And then Jesus says, what does it seem like to you? Will he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and seek the straying sheep? So that's Jesus' question. That's the search here. And I think most of us would answer no, he's got 99. Why would he leave the 99 and just go after one? And that's a good hireling answer. I mean, we're all hirelings when it comes to sheep. But that's not the shepherd's answer. I have 100 sheep. I'm going to have 100 sheep. I've got 99 right now, but I'll have 100 again when I get that one back. And so he went off in search on the mountains, a difficult search, a trying search. Um, The point isn't that he abandons these sheep and doesn't care about them. He's he's got an associate. He's got a dog, some combination of that. That's really not the point. The point is he's not just content with them. He goes after the one who's wandering, the one who's straying. And so he goes off on this difficult search. I mean, he goes through through you've seen pictures of uh, the holy land it's a rocky land the holy land is it's a weedy land it's a bushy land there's a lot to hurt himself and 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 get scratched with as the sheep goes his sheepy way and yet he goes after him he goes through a lot of trouble and whatever the trouble and whatever the bloodshed he's not going to come back until he has his wandering sheep this search And then thirdly, the celebration in verse 13. And if it should happen that he finds it, amen, I say to you. So Jesus really underscores this. This is a big point. I say to you that he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who have not strayed. And of course, his point is not that the 99 have no value. Listen, it's that the one has not lost value by straying. And that's the whole point of the section. It's not that he doesn't care about the 99, it's that he still does care about the one who strayed. He cared enough to go get it, cared enough to bring it back, and he's delighted to have it back. He doesn't love it less because it strayed. Why? Because it's one of his sheep. And he loves his sheep, cares for his sheep, as a good shepherd does. So, uh, of course, this is to counter the, the, the whole point of this section, which is that it's our tendency to look down on somebody who's strayed. The very thing Jesus says, don't do, don't look down on these little ones. But when one strays, we, it's our tendency to look down on them, to think less of them for having strayed, for having stumbled. Who are we like when we do that? We're like the prodigal son's brother, aren't we? When he comes back, the father is, is Luke chapter 15. The father is overjoyed, throws a huge party. Prodigal son's elder brother isn't even there. And when he hears about it, he is fuming. He's furious. And he see, his father has to go find him because he can't even speak to the man. And when, the, when he asks him, where, are, where have you been? The, the, he doesn't even call him father. He says, look, <laughs> very disrespectful. He says, to his father, look. And talks about this son of yours. Obviously, that's exactly the attitude Jesus wants us to look at and never have. (laughs) And that's exactly what he says here. Don't look down on one of these small ones even when they stray because it's the Father's joy to go and get him back. And when he gets him back, he rejoices over that one. And so should we. So uh, the man's wanderer, and now Jesus points us to the Father's will, Letter B, our Father's will, verse 14. Jesus points us to our Father's will. Our Father's will. Thus, it is not the will of your Father who is in the heavens that one of these small ones perish. So Jesus says the Father is just like this sheep herder. 99 is not enough. He will have his hundred and only his hundred. Not one will be missing. And so he has made it absolutely certain that not one of his elect will perish. Now before I expand on that, I just want you to see the progression here. Why should we not look down on little ones? Well, there's three reasons. One, because Jesus says so. Two, because angels have been assigned to them. And three, because the Father delights in them. The Father loves them. Uh, Boy, Jesus has us covered, I think. There's no way around this. But we need to see that in the larger context of the Bible, God has an eternal plan that takes in every consideration that makes sure that He secures every one of His sheep and keeps every one of His sheep. Now, rather than the verses we commonly look here, you've been taught about this many times as a church, let's look through the angle of the Gospel of John and turn to John chapter 17. And we get a peek here of the councils between the Father and the Son. In fact, we get a peek here into the eternal councils, the eternal dealings of the Father and the Son. See, what's involved in making and keeping a sheep? John 17, now Jesus looks up and he prays to the Father. And I just remind you, this is the Lord's Prayer. The thing that starts out, our Father who art in heaven. That's not the Lord's Prayer, that's our prayer. This is his prayer to his heavenly father. This is one that only he can teach because the things, I mean, only he can pray because the things he says in it, none of us could say. This is not a model to us. This is the son's prayer to his father. So he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, If you let the Scripture say what it says, it's really fairly straightforward and simple, and I've prayed that for any who the light has not yet gone on for that it will as we look at these forceful words. Jesus has authority over all flesh, and of all flesh, there's a subset whom God has given to Him. We call them the elect. That's a biblical term, those whom God has chosen to be in Christ. There is that subset, to all whom you've given Him, He may give eternal life. And what does that eternal life mean? Verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So it's not just eternal existence. Every human being will exist forever. But it's an existence that centers around the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ. So this eternal life is full conversion in Christian life. Matthew 11, he'd said the same thing, that none knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom he chooses to reveal him. And and the same towards the Father. So he says, I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you've given me to do. Now this giving... When did this happen? Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself for the glory which I had with you before the world was. So we, are, we have the privilege of looking into the councils of eternity, that in eternity past, before the world was even created, the Father selected his elect and gave them to Christ to save and gave him a work to come into the world and do everything required for their salvation, for their full salvation. Every last one of them. Because this is his flock and he'll have his whole flock. None missing. None missing. Jesus reflects that. Read on. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So again, he underscores it's a subset. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words that you gave me, I've given to them. And they received them, truly understood that I came forth from you. They have believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. This is a heavy, heavy statement. It's one that should teach us a great deal. He's not praying for the world in general. He's praying for the elect. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And then look at what he says in verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. What's the name of the son of perdition? Judas, who was not elect. He was one of the disciples, but he was not one of the elect. And Jesus kept every one of those whom God gave to him. Jesus came to do the work of securing eternal life, For every one of those who God gave him. For them and them alone, but for every last one of them. And like in this parable, 99 is not enough. 99 is not enough. A hundred out of a hundred will be given eternal life and will be kept. He says, I haven't lost any of them. Imagine the son coming back to the father and saying, I did a pretty good job. I saved and kept most of those who you gave me. But that's not what he says at all. He kept everyone. Now, how does that work out in time? That's an eternity. What happens in our lifespan that's the outworking of this eternal uh, transaction between the Father and the Son? Look at John chapter 6. And again, very clear words. We should feel their force and submit to them. That's what we do with the Word of God. So, uh, reflecting beforehand what he's going to say more about in chapter 17, in John 6.37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. There's a series of sermons just in that one verse, isn't there? But just look at how it reflects what we've been talking about. Every last one of those whom the Father gave gave to Christ to give eternal life They will show that they are those ones by coming to Christ. We will know in time and history which ones the Father gave to the Son by which ones come to the Son. Every one of them will come to the Son. None of the others will come to the Son for eternal life. Every one of them will come to the Son, and He, for His part, will never cast them out. A hundred out of a hundred will go to eternal life. "'For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, "'but the will of Him who sent me.'" And that is that saving will we've been talking about. "'Now, this is the will of Him who sent me, "'that of all that He's given me, I lose nothing, "'but raise it up on the last day.'" And there it is again. "'The entire flock who the Father gives to the Son "'will make it to heaven.'" He will raise it up on the last day, and this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And then he underscores the whole in verse 44 by saying, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, every last one the Father gave to the Son will come to the Son, and every last one who comes to the Son will have eternal life and will have this resurrection of which He speaks, the resurrection of the blessed. Now, coming back more to the point, the exact point, this is all sort of background understanding. Coming more to the exact point in Matthew 18, turn to chapter 10. And such a great chapter, one is tempted to read the whole thing, but we'll just read a few verses relatively. You know, the chapter is about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And I just want you to look with me at verses three and four first that the Good Shepherd comes, and to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them. and The sheep follow him because they know his voice. His sheep have a particular relationship to him. When he calls, they come. Does that make you think of anything in Matthew 18? What was the point of the little child? How was he an illustration to the disciples? Jesus called him, he came. He stood where Jesus put him. And he stayed there to be used by Jesus. And so the sheep hear his voice, and they come, every last one of them. He knows them, they know him, he leads them out. And now, look at verses 26 through 29, and these are just dynamite. First of all, he says to the unbelieving Jews, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, there are countless Christians who have not embraced what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign saving grace, who would have to swear that that verse is backwards. Because if you ask them, how do you become a sheep? They'd say, well, you become a sheep by believing in his voice. But what does he say? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He doesn't say you are not my sheep because you don't believe. The cause of their unbelief is the fact that they're not his. They're not his sheep. That's why they don't believe. So if you did turn it properly on its head, he could turn to the apostles and say what? You do believe because what? You are of my sheep. It's not that they're sheep because they believe. It's that they believe because they're sheep. They're elect. They're given by the Father to the Son to save, to give eternal life. Read on. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, this is just such a precious verse. It has meant so much to me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever lsb does a good job there they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has been given to me who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand now this teaches that all the saved will be saved for eternity they'll be saved all the way that the son keeps all his people every last one that's called eternal security a lot of people don't walk that like that name because of the misuse that's made of it but it's it's is the 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 fact that once someone is genuinely saved he is eternally saved now I know many people would say but you know Jesus says Uh, None can snatch them out of my hand. None can snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's all well and good. That's wonderful to know. But, and what's the but? Well, they can get themselves out of His hand. If I exercise my free will, I can just get myself out of Jesus' hand. And and God would let me because He has to bow down to my free will. It, It rules over Him. And so if I want to get out, I can get out. It's just... Well, there's a lot of problems with that. But in this verse, there's just one gaping, massive, insuperable problem with that. And what is that? The words I skipped. What does he say? I give eternal life to them and what? They will never perish, ever. So if someone succeeds in getting himself out of Jesus' hands and leaves Jesus forever and goes to hell, well, then I guess you'd have to say he perishes, right? Yep, you'd have to say He perishes. The one thing Jesus says He can never do once He gives eternal life to Him, He will never perish. There's no loophole to that, my friend. There there simply is no loophole to that. If someone can manage to get away from Christ, then it's because he never had this. Because the definition of being a sheep of Christ is Christ never loses you. If, If somebody who says that he's a Christian can get lost, then... He can't have been a sheep because sheep never perish because he doesn't lose any of them. He said that. And, and now we see perhaps maybe more clearly than you had. I can hope, uh, that this is an eternal plan. This isn't something that was just cobbled together, you know, to try to do something about the misery of the human condition. This is something that was laid and in place and complete in every regard before the world was even created. So the... Preservation of a a genuine believer is something that the Trinity has set its will on and devoted all its power to, and it's a sure thing. And so we can hear Jesus say, it is not the will of my Father who's in the heavens that one of these small ones perish, and all we can say to that is, amen. That is clearly and obviously true. Isn't that a wonderful truth? You're Christian, doesn't that give you just the greatest joy? It should. If it doesn't, then we really need to get on our knees before God and search our hearts. Deal with whatever it is that keeps this from being a cause of great joy to us. Our Father will not be content with 99% of His people coming to heaven. There must be 100%. And of course, Spurgeon says it better than I, so I'll just let him tell you. He says the father takes a special interest in these stray sheep because they're his own. The man did not go after wild beasts nor after other men's sheep, but he had a hundred sheep of his own and when he would counted them, he missed one. The hireling whose own sheep they are not would have said, well, we have nearly the hundred. We need not be particular about an odd one, but these hundred sheep belonged to the shepherd himself. They were his own by choice, by inheritance, by divine gift, by glorious capture, and by costly purchase. He could not accept ninety and nine for a hundred. And then he turns to speak specifically of Jesus' work of salvation. None of them is lost, saith he. uh, Those thou that gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus could not endure to report a loss upon the flock handed over to him of the Father. 99 is not a 100, and the Savior will not consider it such. For well he knows that it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so to assure that, the Father came up with an absolutely certain plan to save every last of his elect and the son agreed to go and accomplish the salvation of every last one of the father's elect and the spirit agreed to come and breathe life into and give conviction of sin to and convert every one of the father's elect and the angels of heaven watch over every last one of the father's elect he has sealed it with his will he sealed it with his honor, and he turns to us and he says to us, don't you look down on one of these small ones. Knowing how the Father sees them, knowing how the angels are set over them, knowing what I think of them, you make sure that you do not look down on one of these small ones. Lost and found every last one. You may be a very small person, I am a very small person, but a very large God has set his love on us. And that doesn't make us big, but it does make him glorious and us dearly loved. And so he calls on us to see each other that way. Not as competitors, not as obstacles or inconveniences, but as under the protection of heaven's host. And so He came into the world to save sinners. And save sinners He did. And not one will be lost. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glorious revelation of Your glorious counsel and Your glorious Son. Thank You for the wonderful work of salvation and for what You have done and are doing and will do for Your people. We thank You that the invitation goes out to all who were lost. And we we pray for them, for any who've come in and not yet heard Christ's voice because here's the point. Do they hear him calling through the preaching of Christ? As they hear Christ preach, as they hear Christ's words, do they hear in their hearts Jesus calling them, saying, come to me, come to me? Then, Father, grant that they come. Grant that they respond to that voice and come. And so coming, they will show themselves to be among your sheep. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can, would you please stand and we will sing first and last verses of hymn 45, Surely Goodness and Mercy. A pilgrim was I In the cold night of sin I did bone, when Jesus, the kind shepherd, found me, and now I am on my way home, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the day. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. Last verse. When I walk through the dark, lonesome valley, my Savior will walk with me there and safely. He's gone to prepare Surely goodness and mercy Shall follow the words of Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in grace.